0: The sermon text for this day is Revelation 22, verses 12 through 21. These are the final 10 verses of the Bible. Revelation 22, starting in verse 12. Jesus is speaking here, and he says, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside, Are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This passage refer- references itself as a book of prophecy. And uh, to start, I just want to clarify the book of prophecy that it's referring to is not the entirety of Scripture, but it's referring to the book of Revelation itself as a book of prophecy. But that leads me to a question for you. What does it mean for it to be a book of prophecy? Or, more finely tuned, what is prophecy? What is prophecy? Something that is going to happen in the future. Okay, that's fair. What else comes to mind? What is prophecy about? Spreading Spreading the word, and someone that God speaks through, a prophet, is someone that God speaks through. Right, okay, good. Yep, yep, yep. Very good. Prophecy is um, kind of a strange idea for us, right? Prophecy is something that shows up in a lot of places in the Old Testament. Uh, There are many Old Testament prophets. In fact, in our Bible and theology series, there's going to be one whole questionnaire, quiz thing on the prophets. um, A whole section of the Old Testament. And uh, it came up in the Old Testament times. How do you know if a prophet is true or not? And the, uh, the, the test that was applied to, to, to determine if a prophet's predictions were true was if they came true. And then you would know that they were a true prophet, which was great if you wanted to wait for the thing that they predicted to happen to happen or not. Uh, but in the meantime, it kind of left you wondering, well, are they true or not? But that's kind of it. A prophet's word is true if it happens, if it comes to pass. Okay, you know that God is speaking through that prophet if that thing takes place. And that's kind of, that's one of the points that God is speaking through individuals. It's not just someone saying the Cubs are going to win the World Series this year. Notice how I didn't pick the Indians because they're not going to this year. Sorry, that's another ping pong ball. But... If someone just says that, it doesn't mean anything. And even if the Cubs happen to do the Win the World Series, that's great. But it's when God speaks through someone that says something is going to happen and then it comes to pass. Then you know that that has been true, a message from God. Prophecy is really not uh, magical or mysterious like that. It's, It's God speaking through an individual or a group of individuals, perhaps, about something that will happen. But the emphasis is rarely, really on what will happen. Because until it happens, you don't know if it's going to take place or not, and you have to decide how you're going to live in response in the meantime. I believe that most of the time, when scripture addresses prophetic things, it tells us something about what's going to happen in the future, but the emphasis is really on what happens here between now and then. So Revelation is a book of prophecy that says something about what will happen at the end when jesus returns but it 's not just about painting a picture for us of what that will look like it 's about saying something about how we should live today between now and then so uh, this is This has kind of been a complicated topic prophecy has for a number of years, and the the way that Um, The way that it has been interpreted, especially the book of Revelation, has been very complicated and convoluted over the years, too. Um, And all of that kind of plays a background role in how we approach a passage of Scripture like this. Um, There have been many attempts throughout Christian history to kind of unlock the secrets of revelation and figure out what all the different symbols mean and what the numbers represent. Um, Fun story in our, in our own tradition in the church of God. uh, We have uh, at the beginning of our, of our history in the 1880s, 1890s, there were a group of leaders in the church of God movement that, 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 looked at scriptures like what's in Revelation and in Daniel, Daniel in the Old Testament and some other places in the Old Testament, and found numbers and uh, symbols and things and interpreted them in such a way that they took all the numbers and added them up and got the number, the year 1881. It's there in scripture. And that was marvelous because that's happened to be the year that the Church of God began, 1881. And lo and behold, we have found ourselves in Scripture. Now there are two, uh, two kind of issues with this. Number one, well, there are a lot of issues, but number one, we were not the first group of Christians to try this. There had been other groups before the Church of God that added up the numbers differently and came up with 1854 or 1867 or whatever. A lot of them in the 1800s. It was kind of in the air at the time. And then secondly, the really kind of fun thing. Uh, is that for the for our Church of God ancestors to do this and add up to 1881? They started. They, they found all these numbers in Scripture and added them up, but they had to have a starting point to to add up to 1881. And they started with the year 270 uh, as kind of the end of when the New Testament Church. Ended and and then there was this period of darkness until 1881. And from 270 to 1881, there was a really long time of you know nothing and Roman Catholicism and all this messy stuff. But 270 from 270 on, and they kept emphasizing 270. And you know what happened in the year 270? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) Nothing of importance in terms of global Christianity. It was a completely arbitrary number that they said well. If it's going to add up to 1881, we've got to start with 270. There are a couple of issues with that. Anyway, all of that to say, interpreting Revelation is tricky. And again, I think uh, the, the emphasis is not so much about trying to predict what will happen as if Jesus will return in 2052 or whatever we're up to now thinking about the future. Jesus didn't even worry about that. He said he didn't even know when he was going to return. That was only known to the Father. In other words, don't worry about it. But worry about what's happening now, or don't even worry about what's happening now. Just take care of what's happening now in this in-between time. So let's take a look at this passage, this last set of verses from Revelation 22. Not with an eye toward what they say about the end of time, but really what they say about how we should be living now. Because I think that's probably more fruitful for us. How can these words about the end of things change life now? Jesus says he is the beginning and the end. The first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega. Everything that happens happens within the scope of his vision, within the scope of his influence, within the scope of his life, everything that takes place in our lives is visible to Jesus and is part of his story. He says, blessed are those who wash their robes. Blessed is a word that just means happy. Or fortunate, doesn't translate well into English. It's the same word that Jesus used in the Beatitudes back in Matthew 5, the the Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, happy, fortunate. It's a word that just means, you know, things are going pretty well for you. You're in a pretty good spot. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Wash their robes. That's a phrase that we sang in this service, in our heritage hymn, "A Child of God." I have washed my robes in the cleansing fountain. It's part of our uh, part of our vernacular, part of our language. But it's not about laundry. I have washed my robes. Is not about your washing machine and your dryer. It's about an image that comes from earlier in Revelation. Revelation 7, 9 through 17. In that passage, there's a great multitude pictured from every nation standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. They're wearing white robes. They're holding palm branches and they're crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. And these people, it says in Revelation 7, have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Blood, of course, does not make anything white. We're not talking about literal washing here, like you would do with fabrics. Blood does not make fabric white. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Means, it refers to, those who so identify with the death And resurrection of Jesus, that they are cleansed from sin by his blood, and that they have a new and pure identity as his followers. But the interesting thing about this phrase, blessed are those who wash their robes, it's not blessed are those who have washed their robes. The tense matters here. It's not the perfect tense, have washed. I have washed my robes in the cleansing fountain, and so I'm done with all of that. I don't have to worry about being cleansed anymore. No, the the language is, blessed are those who wash, present tense, kind of a continuing present tense. Those who are washing their robes. Blessed are those who keep washing their robes. That's that's the sense that we're talking about here. It's not a one-time washing. It's a continual cleansing, a continual washing, continually being made white and clean by the blood of the lamb. So that, Jesus continues, so that they may have the right to the tree of life. Do you remember the tree of life? Where does that come from? That's a reference to Genesis, isn't it? Yeah. From the very beginning of the Bible, the end of the Bible is referencing the very beginning in that first couple of chapters of Genesis two and three, uh, Adam and Eve, the man and the woman are in the garden of Eden, and they're instructed by God to eat from all of the trees of the garden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is what they promptly go and do. That's how the story goes. Uh, They're not instructed not to eat from the tree of life just from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? But they eat from that, and then God says, well, uh, we better kick them out of this garden so they don't eat from the tree of life, and then they would live forever. Okay, this idea of the tree of life is now transplanted, so to speak, into the, into the book of Revelation. This is the tree of life that those who wash their robes will have the right to access No longer will we be separated from that, but we will have access to that tree. We will go through the gates into the city, Jesus says. This is a reference to the heavenly city that's been part of Revelation's story up to this point. The new Jerusalem that was pictured coming down from heaven and described in very glorious detail. It's the presence of God. It's where we can dwell in God's presence forever, permanently and eternally. But there's a distinction to be drawn, as is often the case in descriptions of of the end of the age or descriptions of who God's people are. There's a circle, and uh, you're either in the circle or you're out of the circle. And there's there's a difference to be mentioned here. Jesus says, blessed are those who are washing their robes. They will have access to the tree of life. They will go through the gates into the city. But outside, but outside. And the question always has to be asked in every generation. Am I inside or outside? Not are they inside or outside, but where do I find myself? If there's somebody else in your mind that you're worried about right now, that's fine. You can worry about them. But primarily, scripture is intended to have us do some self-examination and figure out which side we're on. Outside is... Not in the dwelling place of God. It doesn't get any more fine-tuned than that in this passage. In the city is where God dwells. Outside is not where God dwells. And outside, Jesus says, are the dogs. This is not a reference to your family pets. It's not a, a reference to animals at all. It's not saying anything about what happens to animals when they die. It's a reference to people. This phrase, this usage of dogs, is, is used sometimes to refer in scripture to various kinds of impure or malicious people. Especially people who use religion for selfish benefit. Or who use religion to oppress others. Outside are the dogs. Outside are those who practice magic arts. That's not a reference to playing games or watching movies that deal with magic kinds of elements. It's a reference to those who try to manipulate unseen forces, um, either God or otherwise, for their own benefit in some way. Outside are the sexually immoral. The word here is pornos. The word for someone who's sexually immoral is, in Greek, pornos, which is related to our word, pornography. Pornography. And it has to do with the misuse of human sexuality. We need to say, first and foremost, that human sexuality is a good thing. It's created by God, and it's a good experience. It's a good gift, a good creation. But when people use human sexuality selfishly or to harm others, that's when it becomes immoral. Outside are the murderers. Those who harm and kill others, again, for selfish reasons. Outside are the idolaters, those who worship idols, those who worship images, those who worship people or objects or concepts or history or tradition, those who revere things other than God, those who pledge their ultimate loyalty, to something or someone or some nation or some idea other than God. Usually, we create and worship idols without realizing it. And we serve them because it feels good. Outside are those who love and practice falsehood, duplicity, fakeness, lying, hypocrisy. Why are people hypocrites? Usually to protect themselves, because they're living for their own benefit. Outside of relationship with God are people who live for their own sake, people who are self centered, not Jesus centered. Blessed are those who keep washing their robes, who are continually cleansed from unholy and selfish attitudes and behaviors. Blessed are those whose lives are continually being formed after the image of Jesus Christ, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus did not live selfishly. He did not consider equality with God, Philippians says. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, humbling himself, becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus prayed, as James read from John 17, Jesus prayed that we would all be one in him, united in Christ, giving witness of the love of God to the rest of the world. When we Christians are divided from each other, we have stopped giving witness to the love of God to the rest of the world. When we have differences of opinion, Differing perspectives, different interests, different goals, which we will have because we are different people. Our challenge is to remain humble before each other and before God. Not to assert dominance or control, but to listen deeply to each other and to find ways to grow together. I'll remind you of our mission statement as a church. It's printed in your worship folder every week. Um, We will intentionally grow as disciples of Jesus and as servants in our community for the sake of the kingdom of God. That kind of growth requires unity and humility and self sacrifice. That kind of growth requires us to keep washing our robes so that we can have access to the tree of life and can live with God. It requires us to become more and more like Jesus. The Bible's last page is a prophetic call for us to follow the example of Jesus until he returns, whenever that may be. And until that time, The invitation is wide open for everyone to hear. Come to the water. Come and take the free gift of the water of life. This is an old invitation, much older than even Revelation itself. Several hundred years before these words were written, Isaiah, the prophet from the Old Testament times wrote, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money, come and buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And a few verses later, Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found, call on him while he is near. The Bible's last page has a paradox. The paradox is that Jesus seems to be far away, and yet he is present already. Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. So he's not quite here yet, I guess. But Jesus is readily available to anyone who is thirsty even now. Jesus has not yet returned, but he is the root and offspring of David, the eternal king and the source of life for all of God's people. Jesus has not yet returned, but he is the bright morning star. The morning star that shines in the waning hours of twilight just before dawn. Venus is the morning star, right? The planet that reflects light to us just before daybreak and then just at evening time. But Jesus is the morning star, the one that signals that the day is about to start. The dawn is about to come. The sun is about to rise. Yes, Jesus is coming soon. But yes, Jesus is already here. So friends, examine your lives for evidence of those things that might keep you outside, those selfish attitudes or behaviors or influences. Examine yourself to see how much of the humility and self-sacrifice of Jesus you are practicing. Allow Jesus to wash your robes again and again. Gauge your level of spiritual thirst. Take the free gift of the water of life and share that water with those around you, both Christians and non Christians. Trust that Jesus is coming soon, but don't worry about the details. Between today and that day, in this in-between now, come to Jesus for the first time or for the millionth time. Receive his life so that your life will look more and more like his. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks that you are present. And we give you thanks that you are coming. Give us strength, Lord, as we navigate the waters of this 21st century, since your time on earth, to, uh, to be faithful to you, and to imitate you in all that we say and do, to be unified, united in your name and in your love. Help us to find ourselves in your presence. And to realize that you have been present with us all through our lives, whether we have known it or not. We give you thanks for these last words of scripture. We pray that you would remind us of them frequently as we go our various ways throughout this week to come. We give you thanks for all things. In the name of Jesus, who is the root and offspring of David, the bright morning star and the hope of the world.